we don't think anything like curator really existed then. It doesn't even really exist today. It's the mission is to bring independence together for mutual benefit. Hello and welcome to the Modern Hotel. You're presented by Stay Flexi, your all-in-one modern operating system for independent hotels. Each episode, we'll get to know an industry expert and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, the modern hotelier. Welcome to the Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi. I'm your host, David. And I'm Steve Karen. Steve, who do we have on today? Yeah, David, today we have on Jen Barnwell. She is the president at Curator Hotel and Resorts. Jen was previously the senior vice president of asset management for Pebblebrook Hotel Trust. But before joining Pebblebrook in 2010, she held VP roles at Peninsula Real Estate and Tishman Hotel and Realty. Jen also has a degree from the School of Hotel Administration from Cornell University. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. We're going to go through some just kind of a, a quick, simple questions we'd like you to answer about yourself. We're going to get, talk about your career, and then we're going to go into some industry trends. And at the end of the quick questions, we have a surprise for you. So and we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. So so what was, your, what was your first job? My first job ever was working at a little par three golf course oh, wow. down the road from my house. So I was in the little clubhouse, taking everybody's money and, you know, giving them clubs to go off on the course and selling them candy bars. It was very, very tiny. <laughs> what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't in hospitality? I'm pretty sure I'd actually be a teacher. Mm. So actually thought about it, you know, for a hot second, kind of mid-career and even got into a graduate school and kind of started classes. And then a new opportunity in the hotel industry kind of pulled me away. And I was like, okay, let me go try this thing. And then I can always go back, you know, to teaching. If this thing doesn't work out, obviously I didn't go back to teaching, but I would think I would be a teacher, probably elementary school. All right, cool. We know we could do a whole show on this, but what's the weirdest thing you've seen in a hotel or one of the weirdest things you've seen? Oh my God. So listen, it's weird to me. I think everyone would agree, not to, meant to offend anyone, but um, it's also kind of funny. So I used to oversee the hotels for Pebblebrook in San Francisco. And, you know, you always want to see what's in the marketplace and who's renovating and what the renovation looks like. So when I went to see, and I'm joking about this because we ended up owning it too, the Villa Florence Hotel on Powell Street in San Francisco when LaSalle had done the renovation, and they had this very strange, like, full-size ostrich that was, like, <laughs> embedded into the front desk. <laughs> and oh it is God. a joke because we had this whole big renovation plan. We probably has since sold the hotel, but it was like, what should we do with the ostrich? You know, should yeah. we bring it to the corporate <laughs> office? Just like, it's a joke. That's funny. Um I don't know if you can still find it online anywhere. Probably not because I think the new owner did renovate, but it was just a very, you know, on one hand, you could say a strange design choice and it was strange yeah. and kind of like, you know, we joked about it, but it also kind of got you talking about the hotel. So yeah. maybe there was a yeah. reason behind it. That's funny. Who, who did you admire growing up? Oh, wow. Who did I admire growing up? Um, 
for me, it's a, it's a little bit of a hard question to ask because you don't really necessarily appreciate things when you're super young, but I will tell you that I'd have to say my parents, honestly, because they hustled so hard. We, you know, grew up in a small town in New York state and we did not have any money. I, you know, we were poor and they really hustled very hard. They worked hard. I wasn't spoiled by any means, but I definitely was given an amazing upbringing with all my family around and actually didn't really want for anything that was very important. And we all played sports and just the amount, and you guys may know if you have kids or will soon have kids, like the amount of time commitment and energy you put into your kids' sports or whatever they choose to do activity-wise, and especially a travel sports team, which I did with volleyball traveling all around New York State and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So I had a, a maybe only a small appreciation for it at the time, but I knew they were really taking care of me. But just, you know, all these years later, I just, I don't know how they did it. They sent three kids to an Ivy League school and just like always bettering the next right. generation. What they accomplished was pretty amazing because both of them only went to, you know, a community college and sure. they just really put their heart and souls into us. Yeah, that's great. If you could take anyone dead or alive to lunch, who would it be? Um, these are hard questions. You guys are putting me on the spot. Am I allowed to say Prince? Because I feel like he sure. was like, Absolutely. so Prince was Absolutely. my first cassette tape. I remember being a young girl, like my mom let me out in the mall by myself to go buy my first cassette tape and it was Prince Purple Rain. And oh my gosh, when he passed away, it really cut deep. So maybe it's Prince (laughs) because I never got to go to any of his concerts. Got it. Uh, Is there a a secret talent talent you have that nobody knows? (laughs) I think like, did anything come out like with my kids, you know, since I've had my kids? I might have to come back to that. I can't think of anything right off the bat. Judy from Dream Hotels. uh, Hers was hilarious because she was said, yeah, my town is I'm an excellent parallel Parker. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a good one. (laughs) I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know how worthy it is, but I would say if you're doing any kind of pop culture trivia, you probably want me on your team. Like I'm one of those, you know, work is so intense and. You know, family is intense, so I tend to watch all those ridiculous reality shows just yeah. to kind of zone out. So I pretty much know everything there is to know about pop culture. <laughs> Got it. And two more. What's Name something that's on your bucket list. Well, travel-wise, which is like I'm always thinking about because, again, like, once you have small kids, it's kind of like you're a little bit tied to your immediate environment unless you have like a huge support system. But um I definitely want to make it to the Maldives for sure. And I would also like to make it to Japan someday. So my bucket list is more around travel. We found out, I don't know if you know this, but Andrew from the Independent Lodging Congress, he actually lived in Japan. He I was didn't a guest. Know that. We, yeah. So he's, uh huh. He speaks Japanese. It was like we were, he does martial arts. It was all stuff that like just oh never gosh. would come up. So that's, that, that right. was kind of cool for me doing the show. We'd find out stuff like that. So very cool. Um, if you could have a superpower, what superpower would you like to have? To be invisible. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> when I want to. <laughs> All right. So now we have now we have your surprise. Um, so we are going to do, and this works out perfect with your secret talent. We're going to do a condensed final 
round of the family feud. I'm okay. going to ask you three questions. If you get mm-hmm. the number one answer on each question, Stay Flexi will donate $100 to the charity of your choice. So we're going to give you 20 okay. seconds. I'm going to ask you these questions and we'll just start. You ready? Mm-hmm. Name something you find at a breakfast buffet. Scrambled eggs. In horror movies, name a place teenagers go where they're always where there's always a killer on the loose. <laughs> the basement. Name something you see outside that would make you want to stay inside. Rain. Hmm. <sighs> All right. I feel so good about this one. I feel number good. one answer <laughs> for something you'd find at a breakfast buffet is eggs. Number two oh, is good. bacon. Very close. Eggs twenty five. Yeah, bacon, I was 24. thinking I should have said bacon. So good. You got that one. So in horror movies, name a place where teenagers go where there's always a killer on the loose. The number one answer was cabin or woods. Mm-hmm. Number two was graveyard. I was going to say cemetery too. Yeah. Okay. That was, that was good. And then name something you'd see outside that would make you want to stay inside. And number one answer, bad weather. So you got yeah. two out of three. So we'll still, we'll donate $50 to the charity. I'll get that from you uh, okay. later, but that's it. So that worked out perfect. Your secret talent actually kind of, you know, worked with that. But anyway, all right, Steve. Awesome. Awesome. That so, was fun. So Jen, thanks for that. Now I want to find, we get to find out a little bit more about you. Uh, so where were you born? You mentioned New York, I believe, but so, we're in New York. Upstate New York, the exact town was actually, it's called Montour Falls, which no one will know where that is. Mm. That's just the hospital that my parents had gone to, but it's kind of right outside Corning, New York, and everyone's kind of heard of Corning mm. Incorporated and Watkins Glen, which is nearby, which also has a big racetrack. How did growing up in Upper New York shape you for who you are? A couple ways. One was to really appreciate, like, have that appreciation for family because I was very lucky growing up. Like, almost all of my aunts and uncles were, were nearby, like, either in our town or the neighboring town. So I grew up spending a lot of time with aunts and uncles and, you know, all of my cousins. So, I mean, that was amazing. Like, I think about, like, every birthday party, you know, since I was little to I got older, just that appreciation for family. And secondly, I mean, absolutely no disrespect to where I grew up, but also kind of wanting to get out. So being there, and it was a wonderful place to grow up, but it was also kind of small and kind of simple. And I was like, okay, what else is there out there? I really worked hard in school. Because that was like the path out. It was like, get into a great school, you know, do well in college and in a great program. And then you're out of here. Like you can go to the big city and explore and, you know, start your life. I, I totally get that. Do you, do you miss kind of the quietness of, of your hometown? <laughs> you know. Now that you're like in D.C.? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like, so when I first out of school, I lived in New York City. So it was like I would go back once in a while and I like couldn't sleep. Right. Because it's like so quiet. quiet. But things also (laughs) change, you know, things change everywhere. So what I thought growing up was kind of a sleepy little town, you know, a lot of places evolved and there's, you know, more Mm -hmm. going on now than there used to be. So I do definitely appreciate it. And especially once in a while, I get to go back to where I went to school for college and it's nearby my hometown. And I just appreciate, yeah, the beauty, you know, the Finger Lakes areas where I grew up and just the, you know, everything around the wineries and the vineyards and the scenery and the 
state parks and the gorges and the waterfalls. I mean, I do definitely appreciate that stuff and love going back, although I don't definitely don't go back enough. I'm with it. The only thing that gets me is a 25 mile an hour speed limit. That's the thing that I can't handle anymore. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. That's what gets me. Yeah, that's the same my my hometown too. They changed the our main road from 35 to 25. So every time I go to visit my parents, I've got to like like say to myself as I drive down the street, Think 25, about it. 25, 25, because of course they did that <laughs> so they could have the cop park and get you that ticket. But uh, so outside right, of sports, right. did did you and your family travel much when you were growing up? No. <laughs> So again, going back to, you know, the, the means we had or the lack of means. So we did a couple road trips. So we would go from upstate New York and we would drive to right. one time it was Orlando, you know, for Disney World when yeah. we were a lot younger. And then when I got older and was kind of approaching high school, we did that whole road trip and we went to Daytona Beach. Outside of that, no. I mean, the area was great. You know, when would you usually travel as a family using the summers? And we had these beautiful Finger Lakes all around. So it was more about kind of barbecuing with family and going to the lake. Someone always rented a lake house or something like that. So we would hang out like at the lake for most of the summer. Outside of, you know, just academics, when you were at Cornell, did you, were you part of any clubs, sororities? Did you play volleyball when you were at Cornell? I did. So I played volleyball at Cornell just the first couple years. You know, for me, it was hard to stop playing sports because I had done it, you know, my whole life up until that point. I was in high school basketball and volleyball, and then thankfully got recruited to play at Cornell. But it was difficult to maintain for me because I had school, and I also had to work on work-study, and then I had volleyball. And although... I mean, I love volleyball still today and the discipline of it and the team camaraderie. It wasn't going to be the center of my life. I mean, it's like I wasn't going to miss class for volleyball and I didn't want to miss my exams for volleyball. And no matter what sport it is, it's like the coach wants it to be your number one priority and you have three practices a day. And I was like, you know, I can't keep up. I have to have a job and I really need to do well in school. So I kind of held it together the first couple of years and then I had to give it up junior and senior year so I could focus more on my studies and working and getting summer internships that I thought, you know, were much more important for me to get where I needed to be. Um, But otherwise, I wasn't really, you know, in some kind of academic focus clubs or like honors or associations. um, But frankly, the hotel school just kind of felt like it's a little club. It was like, you know, this little (laughs) microcosm within Cornell. So we kind of had our own thing going on there. And you graduated with a degree from the hotel school focusing on finance and real estate. It seems like all your jobs have focused either on real estate or obviously in hotels. How did you know what you wanted to do so early? <laughs> well, for me, it was more I knew what I didn't want to do. Right. <laughs> so oh, <okay. laughs> I did um, during school. I always worked. There was a hotel on campus called the Statler. So I mm-hmm. did... You know, every job that was available to the students over those four years of school. So everything, you know, reservations, front desk, bellman. I worked in the kitchen and did, you know, every job in the kitchen. I was a server in the restaurant and a banquet server. So I did everything I could in the restaurant or the hotel space in terms of my job during school. And then I did a couple internships during the summers. Both of them were also in operations. Well, one summer I stayed at Cornell and worked at the hotel in the kitchen. And then 
I did a summer at a resort in Florida where I was, again, a banquet server and cocktail waitress and lunch server. And then I worked for a management company at a hotel at BWI airport, like for the whole summer, like a management trainee. And so I think it is kind of crucial to my base of knowledge and kind of obviously the direction I took to have all that experience in operations and try to wrap my head around how a hotel actually operates. And I had amazing exposure to that, but I also didn't like it very much. (laughs) And I like have the greatest (laughs) level of respect for everyone, all those hotel teams that are on the front lines, because it just really wasn't for me. I was much better suited for the analysis and the numbers and the analytics and all the contracts and the agreements and the negotiation. That's really what interested me, you know, and got me excited. So luckily I was able to kind of realize that. And I, you know, tried to take those kind of courses, you know, my, my two last years at Cornell to get more focused on real estate and finance and was lucky enough to get a job at, at Tishman right out of college, which was fantastic because, you know, they're an owner, they're an operator, they're an asset manager, they did brokerage, they did construction, they did development. So they were all on the ownership for the most part side of things. So it was a good fit for me. And you said you knew what you didn't want to do. What didn't you want to do? I didn't want to oh, work at a hotel. Okay, so that's what it was. <laughs> got it, got it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Is there anything that made you really fall in love with kind of, I, I guess, a path you took, more of those contracts? What was that moment where you're like, oh, I'm, this is what I should be doing? You know, for me, it was just realization, like, that's what I was good at. So... I was good at numbers. I mean, that's just kind of how my mind works. I'm not a super creative person, but I love being in the room with their creatives and seeing how their minds think and, you know, taking the ride with them on all these renovations and reconcepting and renamings of hotels I've been a part of. So I think for me, what led me to where I am, because I was definitely better at it. So, you know, I could do Excel spreadsheets. And I can read contracts and kind of boil it down to, you know, what the most important terms are. And I listen, it's not like I was negotiating anything my first, you know, five to eight years of being out after school. But I had great experiences being in the room with the executive VPs and the senior VPs and the managing directors that were doing all of that stuff. And I was reading contracts front to back. I was doing all of this analysis and then showing it to them and getting comments and rerunning it like a million times. That's just kind of where my capabilities were. So that's why it led me more to the ownership side of things or the analytical side of the industry. Do you have a favorite memory from Cornell? So many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was such a good experience. I think, honestly, right off the bat, just freshman orientation, it was like, you show up and you have this whole week of like fun-filled activities to meet everyone that's on your freshman floor. And I was lucky enough that my roommate, we, we selected each other, requested each other because she was on the travel volleyball team with me that I was on in high school. And she also went to Cornell to play volleyball. So I already had my match with my roommate. Right. So I knew that was going to be good. And then we just had this most amazing freshman floor. It was a really good mix of 
like a ton of athletes. There were hockey, right. ice hockey players and swimmers and football players on our floor. And then just the really, really smart, you know, pre-med kids. And there were kids from other countries and there were kids from Long Island and there were kids from California. So I know it's just like one little aspect or, you know, one little That's part, great. but I did feel like Cornell was great exposing me to a lot of things, a lot of diversity, especially growing up at that time, like, you know, in the nineties in a small town in upstate New York, it gave me a lot of exposure. You definitely were on the cool kids floor. Yeah. The cool kids floor. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You absolutely, absolutely were. <laughs> just gonna, It's a great town too, to be, I mean, as far as college towns, it's just a great town. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. Like everything, I mean, the campus is so big, but then you know, you can move off campus and everything yeah. is, you know, still walkable. And then you can go down to the commons and see kind yeah. of what's going. I mean, Ithaca was kind of ahead of its time with all of the organic movement and like farm to table and all that stuff yeah. and expose yourself to some of that too. Absolutely. So, so now we get to talk about your career a little bit. So oh, <laughs> uh, you, after Cornell, you were the VP at Tishman's Hotel and, and Realty. And then after that, you were the SVP at Peninsula Real Estate. How did those roles prepare you for Pebblebrook? So Tishman was great because they hired new grads right out of college. And it was an analyst program. You know, I kind of give it that, that label. And they really worked too hard, which was a good thing. They owned a bunch of hotels. You know, their niche at that time were these very big convention center, big branded hotels that they owned with partners. They had loans on them and they also asset managed. So we were deep in analysis every month as the, you know, owner asset manager creating a bunch of analytical reports even something as simple as, you know, typing up meeting minutes, like typing up summaries of the hotel's monthly performance. And they may have been managed, you know, by Starwood at the time, but it wasn't the deep kind of analysis that you would get from the management company per se. It was like the asset management company had to report on out on those things. So I learned a lot at that point about, you know, analysis and write-ups and I got to go to the hotels, you know, a little bit, not that, not too much. But Tishman was so vertically integrated and they always needed analyst help on things. So when I joined, they were also working on finishing up. At that time, it was called the West Rio Mar, which was a new resort development in Puerto Rico. So I was on one hand doing these monthly analysis reports, basically for hotels they asset manage, which was similar to it's all asset management. And then I was also working on a ground up development in Puerto Rico, trying to get this huge Westin open. And then also trying to figure out what to do with all the development parcels that were all surrounding the hotel. Like, do we do condo hotel or condos? Whatever do we do? And then there was a whole group at Tishman that was dedicated to brokerage. So I got to work in that group for a while. And what I mean by brokerage at Tishman was they acted as the broker for other owners. So I was involved in the sale of two or three hotels in Hawaii. I was also involved in like debt placement, for example. Some owners came to Tishman and needed them to run a process to find debt for them, sometimes to find equity partners. And then even when I was there, it's been much overtaken since when I was there, but I don't know, when was it? It was either the very late 90s, maybe early, maybe the very late 90s. At that time, 
they still own it, the big Dolphin Swan complex in Walt Disney right. World. At that time, we did the biggest CMBS loan deal that had like ever existed. So to be involved in, you know, it was constantly interacting with partners and, you know, recapitalizing, refining all the hotels and CMBS got really big at that point. And it was like, let's put CMBS loans on everything because interest rates are so low and they syndicate it out. And then on the construction side, it was like, do you have to renovate a hotel or give an owner an estimate on what it may take if they're going to buy something, if we're advising them to buy something, we need to give them an estimate on what it may take to do your capital improvements. All I had to do is like walk downstairs and that's like the huge Tishwing construction company. So they had all these resources <laughs> in house, you know, yeah. that were very good at what they've done, you know, hundred year history, very effective, everything that Tishman did, Tishman also built. So they were building the resort in Puerto Rico. They built the Ewok retail complex in Weston Times Square also when I was there. So it was truly a great experience from a young person's standpoint because, again, they were so vertically integrated. I got to learn all these different disciplines, again, mostly from the ownership perspective and learn how to do all this analysis and do all this reporting. And I really loved it. I mean, I, at one point, I feel like if you ever work for an owner, like you're in the owner's shoes, which is like the best place to be, like you get to make yeah. all the decisions. <laughs> I could never do anything else at this point because it's like, yeah. I worked for Tishman as an owner. Then I ended up leaving there with a colleague at the time and we put together our own, you know, private investment fund with an Irish bank and syndicated the equity some, to some Irish investors. We bought a couple of hotels. We did all these renovation plans. Unfortunately, that didn't end up working out in the long term because of some things that some bad things that happened in Ireland with the Irish bank, which had nothing to do with us. But again, it was still like in the ownership seat and putting together the redevelopment renovation plans figuring out what the right thing to do is, you know, making one deal with Marriott and then making a separate deal to keep one independent and everything that surrounds like deal making really set me up for then moving on to Pebblebrook. And it didn't hurt that I worked with our CFO at Tishman way back when. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. we didn't forget about each other. You know, whoever overlaps at Tishman as a young person, you're we affectionately called it the pit. So you're in this like room with yeah. no windows together. Right. There were probably like <laughs> 10 of us, like, you know, with our heads down, you know, 12 hours a day. Yeah. So I got in the call from a Pebblebrook CFO to, to see if there was a fit for me to be an asset manager there. Wow. Very, very cool. So speaking cool. of that, so Pebblebrook went live in 2009. I actually found this. I was actually there. <gasps> That's my little... <laughs> little name tag for when I was on the floor That's watching awesome. you guys in 2009. What oh, tell man. us a little bit about what makes Pebblebrook unique? For me and from my vantage point, I had not worked for a public company before. So I was like, okay, this is something different. You know, it's gonna again increase my knowledge base, give me some more information. You were know related to private versus public and how they both operate and how they operate differently. And to be an asset management. You know, it goes back to both Ray and John Bortz's history with LaSalle. I mean, asset management is incredibly important to them. You know, it's one of their core competencies. It's very important to them. You know, there may be other companies that think, oh, we can only make money when we buy and sell. 
But that's not the philosophy here. It's like right. every day, how can we do things better? How can we meet, create value, bring more dollars to the bottom line for our shareholders? So because of that, the asset management function at Pebble Brook sits right under John. Right. It was like, oh my God, what an amazing opportunity. If I can, if you like me and I can get into Pebble Brook, I'm reporting directly to John. Like he oversees all of asset management. The asset managers report to him. He is incredibly involved and knowledgeable about everything and wants to be, as well as being an amazing mentor. So, I mean, coming into Pebble Brook, there's no way. Like, I didn't know everything about asset management and didn't claim to. And he is just the type of leader that wants to mentor people, whether it's, you know, 40-year-old me now or it's, you know, a 20-year-old analyst that comes in our, that come in our doors every year. So it's just... What I felt was very special and very different about Pebble Brook was the culture, the interaction with everyone in the C-suite. Right. It, it's, and it happens every day. Like even technically today is our work from home day, but there's a smattering of people here. And, you know, our CIO is walking around talking to everybody and I'm walking around to see who's here and, you know, having a little conversation. So it's a combination of their view on being deep in the operations through asset management and the amazing culture. You know, right. everybody likes each other here and wants to work together and it's, you know, all for the greater good. And, and now you're the president of Curator. How, how did Curator, <laughs> yeah, how did Curator come to be? Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of that? Yeah, for sure. I, the way I describe it, it is honestly a natural outgrowth of what Pebblebrook was doing for itself. So if you go back to 2018, when Pebblebrook was in pursuit of LaSalle and was successful, combined the two companies together, more than doubled in size overnight to 64 hotels. So to have that much more scale kind of overnight than we had before, John, you know, made a strategic move to create this small group within asset management. We called it our portfolio-wide initiatives group. And there are three people in the group. I wasn't in it at the time, but our VP of curator was Austin Siegel. And they just day in and day out, they were charged with finding value enhancement opportunities within our portfolio, trying to leverage our bigger size. So they did a whole series of what we called our portfolio level agreements that were applicable mainly to our independent hotels, but even some of our branded ones at the time. So you know, to name a few, it's um, parking, audiovisual services, bottled water, credit card processing, credit card gateway. It's not necessarily things that are like are incredibly sexy or like make all the headlines. But you add to that rolling out our own workers' compensation program under the Pebblebrook umbrella. You add all these portfolio level agreements together, plus where we went with insurance being so much bigger. I mean, on an annualized basis, we were saving ourselves millions of dollars, and but they were our deals only, right? Because we put together this team and they were going directly to vendors and doing the, the deals direct. So our operators, you know, of our independents started to notice, they're like, oh, can we get the rest of our hotels on your deals? And we were like, respectfully, no, I mean, those are our deals. But we kept the conversation going, thinking, well, maybe there's something here because we don't think anything like curator really existed then and doesn't even really exist today. It's 
the mission is to bring independents together for mutual benefit. We're not going to have anything to say, and we don't want to have anything to say. There's no property inspections. There's no brand standards. Design your hotel how you want to design it. Staff it how you want to staff it. But if we all come together with this greater scale, then we're going to get better pricing on a whole lot of things and more attention from vendors and service providers and you know better products. You can beta test and pilot test things that we stand behind. We can be your vendor resource and maybe save you a lot of time and save you a whole lot of money. Like why not come together for mutual benefit on the independent side? Because you know in our industry, if you're part of the big, 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 big guys, you get the lowest price on everything. And the you know the poor independents, like yeah. why do we get slighted? And we love independent hotels. I mean, obviously Pebble Brook is the largest owner of independent lifestyle hotels in the U.S. today. So obviously I'm coming from that vantage point. And I've worked on a ton of independent hotels at Pebble Brook and the conversions and the renamings and the repositionings, which is so fun. And they're an important part of our industry. So if we can come together and help them in any way, great. Obviously, we're trying to create a business model out of it too, but it's a value play. It's an ROI play. So we've done over 80 master service agreements that independent hotels can tap into. And again, it's all for the, for the goal of saving them money on fully vetted, recommended systems, services, products. Your value of your hotel will go up the more profitable you are. And you can benefit from all the knowledge, you know, these year, years of knowledge from the Pebblework team and all of our founding members, which are, you know, a group of amazing operators. So since the change now going from Pebblebrook to Curator, what's the biggest change in your day now that you're president of Curator? What's the, what do you think is the biggest change for you on a daily I, basis? Well, I, I spend all my, you know, all my days on the phone talking about how wonderful Curator is instead of, <laughs> <laughs> instead of calling the hotel GM and giving them a hard time about right. why did you spend so much money in food costs this month? <laughs> That's funny. But anyway, jokes aside, you know, my asset management background is invaluable for what I'm doing now because basically everything we've put together within Curator is what I had tried to do as an asset manager. What we tried to do, you know, as a group of asset managers at Pebblebrook trying to create more value and more profitability for the Pebblebrook hotels. So there are big differences. I mean, when you're an asset manager, you know, you're just mainly doing analysis, you're looking at P&Ls, you're looking at contracts still, and you're interacting with your property team, and you're looking at all the revenue reports and trying to make sure the top line is there and that there's flow through and everything. And I loved that. And I loved the property team. So the biggest thing is I miss, greatly miss talking to property teams almost every day. But what has changed is now I'm out there in the market, like learning about, which I didn't really necessarily have time before, learning about all these amazing small independent brands that are out there and exist now and are growing. Even the one, the single owner operator hotel that, you know, could use some help and is off on his own trying to negotiate the best thing he can, but gets no attention from any of the vendors. And um, just building a new team. We brought in all new people from outside of Pebblebrook with various backgrounds. So building a new team, recruiting people, you know, at the senior level and in the junior level to come in has been 
pretty fantastic. And, you know, just talking to all these groups about Curator that, frankly, I probably wouldn't have interacted at all with before. That's fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I, w- I was researching Curator. Mm-hmm. And I did a search on a hotel website. I won't name names, but here's here's just what I found. Curator adds four member hotels. Curator adds six new members. Curator Collection <laughs> adds eight Davidson hotels. Curator and Hotel Resort Collection welcomes four member hotels. Curator Collection adds five member hotels. Curator adds Sage Hospitality Group. Curator adds 13 hotels from Noble House. Curator Collection adds 11 Providence hotels. Okay. That was all within about the past year. So without giving the secret sauce, what <laughs> is the key to curator success? I mean, we're that's gonna, pretty impressive. We're going to keep it going. Um, yeah. The key to curator success is going to be creating these cost savings and therefore value enhancement for the hotels. So really on a very simple basis, it is an ROI. So We have these discussions with prospects. Any independent is potentially a good fit for curator, but we have, you know, pretty detailed conversations, multiple conversations with prospects ahead of time so we can understand what's their tech stack today. Do they have any flexibility, you know, are the expirations of the term coming up? Do they have termination rights? Because in some cases, the hotels have to make a pretty significant change, like, are you willing to change out your PMS to something that is actually a lot better and more cost efficient? Are you willing to change out your revenue management system? When we've seen the hotels in the collection are willing to do this and are much happier after the fact. Are you willing to, you know, change out your bottled water, work with new and different vendors, or even test something out that you didn't even know existed? You know, we were talking to someone today who got to us because he was looking up tipping apps. And then he saw that we have two separate agreements for in-hotel tipping apps for employees. So that was awesome, like in an interesting way that he find, that he did get to us. But, I mean, we cover all the basics, like everything you need to operate an independent hotel. We have a solution or in some disciplines, multiple solutions for all those things. But what else is out there that you don't have time to figure out for yourself that we've done all the RFPs and the detailed research on? It's things like, the tipping apps. It's things like these new interesting training modules that we're like trying out within Curator ourselves. You know, it's any kind of, you know, new technology, whether it's the robot vacuums or <laughs> there's a million apps and Dave, David knows this very well. There's a million apps out there, but what are the, you know, the right ones that are sustainable and actually solve a problem for you or a pleaser to your guests and actually integrate with everything else that you have. So yeah. The key to our success, I think, is we've got, you know, an amazing foundation with Pebblebrook and our founding members, which happen to be Noble House, Sage, Davidson, Provenance, and and Viceroy. So we have an amazing set of founding members already. So we have an established reputation through that, I think, first and foremost. They all put their hotels in, including Pebblebrook. We can prove through many different case studies how much money these hotels are saving and therefore increasing their value. And the reality is the way we conduct ourselves is, you know, hopefully viewed positively because 
There's a very long free period in the end, you know, purposefully so we can get these hotels in, show them what we have, get them enrolled in things and saving money before they even pay us a dime. And we have very favorable termination provisions. Anybody can get out in 60 days if they're not happy, but we're working kind of tirelessly every day to make sure everybody stays in. And why would they stay in? It's because they're seeing the results. So the word hopefully keeps getting out and people are curious and they'll come in and see what we have to offer. And, you know, we'll save them a bunch of money. So they'll stay. What's a goal for Curator moving forward? You know, we are at 91 hotels today. Maybe our kind of lofty goal is we certainly like to be close to 150 by the end of the year. To reach that goal, we've got to get some more momentum, you know, in the next number of months. We feel really good where we are today. So there's a membership goal in terms of, you know, of course, wanting to get much bigger. And, you know, the bigger we are with the scale and the size, you know, hopefully the more we can accomplish for member hotels. In terms of our offerings, we already have over 80 master service agreements in all various disciplines, but we continue to grow that because, like I said, we've got the basics covered, but it's so fun and interesting to vet all these new things that are out there, which is a lot of what our programs team is focused on now, but also holding the vendors and service providers that we already have agreements with, like holding them to... You know, if we have feedback for them, critical feedback from them, that they're going to continue to evolve their product to make sure that it is a good fit and goes where it needs to be and meets our members' needs. We're focused on any possible way we can drive revenue for the hotels, not directly because we're not a customer-facing company yet, but we're looking at what we would call more the the niche OTAs or niche OTAs. Mm -hmm. And other distribution channels, if we can make some direct deals with them and make sure they're at the lowest cost possible that the the members couldn't get on their own. And then they can pick and choose what they think may be incremental for them and add channels to their lineup of, you know, demand sources. And just really trying to continue to evolve our website. It's more of a discovery website. So you can find, you can be sure if you come onto the curator website, you know, you're going to find really amazing independent hotels. And you can go to each property's individual site for more information. But to really drive home how special these hotels are, all the experiences you can have at these hotels that you can't get anywhere else. So we're working on all those aspects of evolving our website in those ways. And and I do love your website. I was on it. Like You can go to choose the experience you want and you'll bring up hotels. So I thought it was one of the coolest websites that I've seen in a while. So kudos to y'all on that. So Yeah, it's meant to be very visual. You know, as hoteliers, we can't help ourselves because yeah. we really want to yeah. be visual. You know, we're mainly B2B now. You wouldn't necessarily know that from our website, but because we wanted it to look great and be focused on the hotels yeah. more than us. It's great. It's great. So now kind of the last segment, kind of hospitality trends and things like that. But what what is your advice if you're giving advice to somebody who might just be starting in the hospitality industry? What's your advice to maybe one day become president of a company or something? What I like to say to, I was going to say younger people, but anybody of any age mm-hmm. going into the industry now is just try to get as much experience as you can. So whether you know you're in a corporate office, the way I conducted myself is I wanted to be in every meeting I possibly could just to learn, even if that 
you know, you're like, oh, I got to get this report done and that report done. And if I sit in on this conference call, it's going to, you know, set me back an hour. But that's where you learn the most when you're listening, you know, you're in the room and you're hearing the interactions. And if there's documents that maybe you don't have time to read, you read them, like take in as much as you possibly can. And in the hotel environment, you know, similar to what, you know, I said about my career early on, rotate through like every department, every discipline, see what suits you the best. I mean, especially today, hotels are so under-resourced. Labor is such a big issue. If you can rotate around, and maybe that means um, asking your supervisor or just talking to whoever you can management-wise, you know, because you want to, you know, test out other things or help out in other departments to see what it's like, just to figure out what best suits you. That would be my advice because the more you can really learn about how a hotel operates, how they do things, and then also, you know, if you're in a corporate environment, what everyone's roles are and what they do and how they do things, it does set you up. Like always... I've always been the kind of employee that always is asking to, you know, can I be in that meeting or that meeting or this meeting? Can I listen in? Like, I won't say anything. Just let me, you know, listen in or, you know, (laughs) what's this new project? Can I be involved in it too? Even if, you know, maybe I'm not the main analyst or something on it, but can I just like listen in and participate to learn? That has served me really well in my career because, you know, it's that old saying like, if you don't ask for something, you'll never get it. I've never been someone who's just going to sit back and wait for all the accolades to come and for people to somehow recognize how wonderful I am. Like, you got to be your your best advocate in all aspects of your career. So I'm always asking to do more, to see more, to experience more. And I'm going to be in there at the end of the year and tell you how wonderful I am. <laughs> see what happens. That's, awesome. That's good advice. So, I love that. It's always that hunger for learning more. I love it. Oh, yeah. So so oh, right yeah. now, I think it's dying down a little bit. But when we're all on LinkedIn, there's, you know, COVID, there's labor. You just mentioned, you know, the, the labor issues. What what do you think is a challenge that people aren't talking about enough in, in, in hospitality? Because we get over and over, there's so much about, you know, the staffing and, the, and COVID. But what else do you think that we're not talking about that we should be? Good question. I think that... Um, you know, one thing that we've tried to have our eye on, uh, and, you know, it does go back to the labor. It's just, I'm, I'm trying to educate myself more and conduct myself in a certain way. And it goes back to this concept of like recruitment and retention. I just sat yeah. in, it was actually the AHLA Forward Conference that was absolutely amazing. I mean, and it's a women's conference, but it applies to everyone. And just this concept of empathy and really understanding what that is. And in today's work environment, conducting yourself from that lens. And I think that's what people are looking for today. They want to be acknowledged. They want to be understood. They're maybe much more vocal than they used to be. So I think continuing to, if you're a leader, continuing to evolve and make sure you're communicating as much as your employees want you to with them. So I'm trying to do check-ins with my team members all the time just to kind of give them an opportunity to maybe tell me anything they need to tell me, business or professional-wise, and maybe not react to it because that's, you know, part of the learning. Sometimes people just want to tell you stuff 
and you're like, okay, how can I help? Right. You know, you're not making judgment. You're not making suggestions. You're just listening and saying, okay, how can I help? So I think, I mean, it really goes to retention. We need to really understand what our coworkers, you know, and our subordinates, like what they're doing today, how they're dealing with things, what's going on in their life, if they want to vocalize it, because it's kind of ever evolving, you know, the, the workplace landscape and you're more apt to keep your people engaged and happy the more you communicate with them, I think. Yeah, 100%. So a, a recent SCIFT report just showed that RevPAR at U.S. independent hotels is 90% recovered compared to 2019 levels. Brands are comparatively at 75%. Why do you think independents are recovering a little bit more quickly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a proponent of that stat, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I think it's, you know, to be fair, it's probably partially skewed by the fact that the brands have so many hotels in urban cores, and those are the last to come back, especially cities like San Francisco and D.C. But setting that aside, I think it's absolutely still kind of true what's going on. And to me, I think that speaks to just what travelers are looking for. So there's, I mean, think about it, the last two plus years, we've all been sitting back wondering when we're going to travel again. And when we travel, what are we going to do? And if we have some flexibility with our job, you know, maybe we can leave on a Thursday and, you know, stay till Monday, you know, extend your stays, bring your family or your significant other or a friend with you and you can work while they do some cool stuff. So that all lends itself, I think, to the independent space, the lifestyle space, the boutique space, because they have such a story to tell about how special their offerings are. In some cases, you know, very unique, certainly very memorable. People want to make memories now. They want something different, whether it's our treehouse, you know, Pebble Brooks Treehouse accommodations up at Skamania Lodge in Washington State. Or it's a, the La Playa that's run by Noble House for Pebble Brook down in Naples. You can have this beautiful private dinner on the beach. So I think in this space in particular, independents and boutiques have so much flexibility to do what they need to do to keep guests happy and surprise and delight guests. And they just have so many unique characteristics, whether it's design or its location, or its offerings, that they can just continue to make sure that they put it out in the media, make sure their website is their best calling card. Because I, I just think that's what a lot of hotel guests are looking today, those special experiences and ways to make memories. And despite what they may say, I just, you're not going to get that with the big, big, big guys. You're just, you're just not. I mean, this is a totally different kind of hotelier that's running and owning these boutique and lifestyle properties. And yep. they're amazing and they're much different than you're going to get at the alternative. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, everyone I talk to, they're all looking for something unique. They don't want something that they know that is going to be the same in Boston and the same in Philly and the same in New York. They want to do something that, especially with not having traveled, they want something that's going to be kind of right. where they can talk about it and experience something. And I won't name any of the brands either. So I was just, before this, we recorded this. I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Alan Young, and he was 
telling me that he did a scan of the high tech floor and there was only one company that was really focused on robotics or ro- robots. So uh-huh. my question to you is, and maybe that's it, but what do you think is a kind of an upcoming trend in our industry that's here to stay? Something that's new that we haven't probably embraced before that now post COVID or as we're recovering, people are, are going to, you know, there's a trend that will kind of take hold. Yeah, I think I think the hotels and operators that are kind of paying attention, I think it goes to, I want to say choice. So I think you have to have the mobile check-in. I think you have to have the mobile key because there's some people that want it and there's, you know, the fallback is, okay, you have someone at the front desk for those that don't. I think you need to think about how you communicate with your guests. I mean, I was just in L.A., yesterday and the day before. (laughs) And I got texts from the hotel and I also got emails from them. They were a little bit redundant, but I was happy that it was like, okay, yes, you definitely have my reservation. You know, I'm coming. I can do this check-in ahead of time when I have a minute, when I get off the plane. And when I got to the hotel, they handed me my key and I was done. And not everybody wants to check in like that, but I think whether you're a resort or you're in the urban core, I think there's going to be a mix always of people who want absolutely contactless if they can help it. And there's going to be some people who want high touch service too, but whether that's the check-in, the key, whether it's the room attendance and making out, you know, cleaning the rooms or not. When I'm traveling, actually it's both. If I'm there for business, I'm like pretty, I'm like, I don't want anyone in my room. My stuff is all where I want it. But even when I'm when we're with our kids, it's like all we really need is really towels once in a while and we leave sure. the trash out in the door or I'm sorry, in the hallway. We don't want anybody yeah. in our room. And it's not and, and I don't expect it either. So it's like and that also goes to sustainability. It's like there's so many sustainable practices that help you be more efficient, will help you with labor, will make you environmentally responsible. I I do think it's kind of all tied together and also goes back to technology. So I think we've got to find the systems that work and work well. Because I was at a conference Monday and two different people said, well, technology is great, but only if it works, you know, and she's like, the kiosk wouldn't let me check out. And I was like, yes, you're right. (laughs) You know, if you have the kiosk, it has to work. Otherwise, you know, put it out of order sign on it or something. So I think that even if you've, think you don't have to embrace technology so much. I think everybody really does because at the end of the day, you got to provide choice and you'll make both sets of people happy if you can do both. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because one of the things that frustrates me as being on the tech side, being an XGM is that there's like always an assumption, my guests don't want this. And it's like, okay, well, I used a mobile app to get my Uber. I then used my mobile app to get my boarding pass and check the status of my flight. And now you're telling me when I show up at the hotel, all of a sudden I'm allergic to mobile and I don't want to use an app or I don't want to use a device. And, you know, what you guys have done with some of your properties and Lasso and, and which does, you know, the mobile onboarding and check-in is great. Because if I can take a selfie, take a picture of my license, get my credit card information, just pick up the key. If I want that key, because maybe the hotel doesn't have mobile, then that's great. So I'm glad to hear that answer. So. You're absolutely <laughs> right. It's a total disconnect. Yeah, I took, you know, Lyft to the airport. And, and I had everything, my boarding pass on my phone. And then I took Lyft to the hotel. Or no, I used my Avis 
app yeah. to find yeah. out where my car was. I went right to my car. I didn't see anybody at Avis. Went right to my car and like right to the hotel and got my key. But some hotels, most hotels, it's like a total disconnect. It's like you can't know, do anything on your phone. Yeah, agreed. So how do you, kind of on this technology subject, how do you think the metaverse and AR, VR are, are going ex- <laughs> uh, to kind of affect the, the hotel and hospitality industry? I am going to say no comment. I am not educated <laughs> or informed about so, any of that. I think I have to leave it to someone younger than me to figure out. <laughs> so you can watch our, Definitely the podcast. Definitely not my thing. Yeah, the podcast before this one is with Michael Cohen, who's, you know, hospitality, AR, metaverse guy, uh, yeah. metaverse Michael. Uh, so you can watch some of that. I just, I, I, I got feedback that I didn't smile that whole podcast <laughs> from my, and, and the reason why, because I was listening so intently because I right. didn't know anything. I didn't know what he was talking about. Like, I'm like, really? Oh, that's how like, and I was, you know, and a couple of people were like, you looked really serious on that podcast. So today I tried extra hard to <laughs> smile. Oh, I'm, thank you for the reminder. I will watch it because I do want to definitely get more educated about it, but I, I am not the person to opine on that. Sorry, yeah. Steve. You're yeah. all good. You're all good. Yeah, we'll come to, back to that one. We'll talk to you at high tech after you watch that episode and then okay, we'll talk about that's it. That's a good good idea. <laughs> yeah, you can just tell people what I tell people. I know how to spell it and that's about it. I don't know nothing about it. I mean, it. the height of the height of my technology is like, you know, my daughter has her iPad and watches stuff on it. And, you know, I know this is like a tangent, but it is absolutely it never fails to just surprise me. Like, I have a nine month old. And he's grabbing my phone and like trying to play around with it. Like it's so intuitive for them. And me, I mean, I don't know. When did I get my first iPhone like 10 years ago? And like just trying to figure it out. And every time I get a new one, trying to figure it out again. But the kids like pick it up like that. It's amazing. I mean, just two quick funny stories. You know, I think my my son was four. He picked up my phone and I was like, you're not going to be able to get in there. There's a passcode. And he just looked at me and just put in the code. He had been watching me. But like my one, son, my youngest son, it's amazing with the technology, who's autistic, he can pick up my phone, which isn't his main communication device, and find a video from like 2013, like instantly. And you just wonder these kids, they're they're so quick. But anyway, it's crazy. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they're so they'll all quick. be in the metaverse. They they don't have any patience for commercials. That's for sure. I don't think my daughter's ever seen one. Yeah, they don't know what it is. Uh, I I, I got to be honest. I watch uh, Red Zone for football, and now I can't watch commercials during right, football. I'm like, right, you're it, spoiled. It it for me, so I'm kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. Yeah, I do the same thing. So that's it. So we're done. So is there any? Is there a question that you we should have asked you that we didn't? Anything we missed? No, I don't think so. I think. Um, you know, I just encourage everybody, you know, reach out to me or go to our website and reach out. I just, we like to call ourselves champions of independent hotels. And it's absolutely true. It's, you know, where my heart is in the industry and we're just out there trying to help independents. Actually, that's our, our whole mission. So any of those independent hotel owners or operators out there, I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Thank you. I agree hundred percent. You guys are great. Thank you for being on. And that concludes uh, The Modern Hotelier, presented by Stay Flexi. We thank you for being here and hope to see you again soon. You made it to the end of The Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media and presented by Stay Flexi. 
Stay Flexi is your modern operating system for independent hotels. If you're interested in learning more about Stay Flexi, you can go to stayflexi.com. Or if you'd rather talk to me instead, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or email me at steve.karen at stayflexi.com. Thanks and have a great day.